Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'll be joined in just a moment by Peter Robbins. But before I do, I wanted to explain a couple of things. This whole interview with, with Peter came up. He had posted a, um, I guess, a defense of, of Travis Walton, because Walton and Mike Rogers are in some kind of an ongoing conflict about the, uh, the abduction case. And I thought it would be interesting for the two of us to discuss that. And in talking to Peter, we decided, well, maybe we should not be discussing the Travis Walton, Mike Rogers conflict. Uh, we should look to them to get, get their uh, opinions on it and their, their views of it, rather than he and I discussing it from sort of outside the, the bubble. And as we discussed it, we thought we'd talk a little bit about um, inve the investigative process and, and things that we had learned in our many, many years of UFO investigation, which I think is a fine idea, by the way. So we'll be looking at the investigations. And I wanted to say, and I know Peter doesn't really want to discuss this, and, and I understand that. Um, in the investigative process, we've always had a tendency to believe the people we know and trust and like, and sort of disbelieve the uh, people we don't know and don't really like. Uh, I'm thinking the, the believers, the skeptics, the witnesses, the abductees, that sort of thing. I got fooled by a guy named Frank Kaufman from the Roswell case who told a marvelous story, uh, had some documentation to prove it. There was a photograph of him in the um, 509th yearbook made in the summer of 1947, which means Frank Kaufman was obviously there at the base in 1947. He's receiving a medal from one of the um, Lieutenant Colonels assigned at the base. I think it was Payne Jennings who was giving him this medal. 
and for the life of me, I've tried to figure out what the medal is. I think it's the World War II Victory Medal. So I don't know why there would be a presentation for that because that was sort of an everybody medal. If you served in the military during the time of the Second World War, you were awarded the World War II Victory Medal. But the point simply is here was a picture of him in the, in the yearbook. He's in civilian clothing as opposed to a uniform. And he told marvelous stories. He presented documentation. And it was after he passed away that we learned the truth. We found that he had a stash of paper from World War II with the buy war bonds and all of that sort of thing on it. Um, he had two old-fashioned typewriters, and one of them was the ones that he had typed up some of the documents on. And it became pretty clear to us that Frank Hoffman was making up his story. We, um, and I say we, Mark, Mark Rodiger, uh, Don Schmidt, and I checked out his background as best we could after we learned that. He had presented his, his uh, it wasn't a DD form 214, it was separation papers that he had. And we got the originals from St. Louis and they didn't match. So he clearly had forged those. He had forged some of the other documents. So it became clear that he wasn't a reliable source. So we've kind of eliminated from the Roswell case. But I think as investigators, we all fall for that periodically. We, we run into people who seem to be very credible. They have a good tale they're telling. And it's only after we investigate at length that we'd begin to learn that some of the things they were telling us weren't precisely the truth. And I know Peter's run into that as well. Um, we can look at all kinds of things in the past, the investigations that have kind of blown up on us. Um, and I, th I think it's something that we need to kind of remember as we investigate and as we get better to that we need to not accept everything at face value, but take a look at it. Brad Steiger told me once, his philosophy was to believe what he was told until he learned differently. And I've always thought that that's a wonderful philosophy to live by, but as an investigator, I cannot live by that philosophy. I have to make sure everything that I'm being told is the truth. I have to make sure that it's that their recollections as best they can remember. My blog on uh, the Vietnam Ground Zero blog, which I, I have up is uh, it also says the relatively true story of my, my service in Vietnam. The reason I say that is because I know that some of the memories that I was sure were authentic have been co-opted by my memory, I suppose. And, and, and the story I always tell is I was convinced that on Thanksgiving, we left our Thanksgiving meal on our trays in the mess hall because the flight crews were, were scrambled. We were called out immediately. We had to leave. I found letters that my mother had saved that I'd written home and I learned that um, that wasn't true. We had been assigned to a mission in Tainin and we were in Tainin, not in Kuchi, where I was stationed at the time. So I couldn't possibly have left my, my meal there. There are other times when we did leave food on the table. I remember once we were scrambled with, uh, while I was in the line and left the tray on the line. So it wasn't untrue in the sense that uh, I had made the thing up completely out of whole cloth. It was untrue in the sense it didn't take place on Thanksgiving. It took place on other, other occasions. So I, I, we have to remember that sort of thing and we have to look at that kind of information. I know I'm going on a little bit longer than I really meant to here, but the simple point is we're gonna talk about investigative techniques and what we've learned in our investigations. And I'll say that uh, Pete, Peter Robbins is an investigative writer, author, lecturer, whose writing and research are focused on the subject of truly anomalous UFOs and their implications for humanity. He has appeared as a guest on and been a consultant on numerous radio shows, television programs, and documentaries. 
From 2007 until 2010, Robbins served as a consultant to the city of Roswell, New Mexico, and was their liaison to Governor Richardson's office on UFO-related matters. He was coordinator of Roswell's annual UFO symposium and testified before the disclosure hearings held in Washington, uh, held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in 2013. My mind spun ahead of the year because I had been there. I was, I was there as well. And I, I was thinking about that rather than what I was supposed to be paying attention to here. Uh, he is proud to be an associate producer of the award-winning documentary, Travis, the true story of the Travis, of Travis Walton, and writer, director, and producer of the documentary, The Extraordinary Life and Suspicious Death of James Forrestal. And for those of you who don't know, James Forrestal was the um, first secretary of defense, I believe it was, and uh, jumped to his death in 1950 from the Bethesda Naval Hospital, easy for me to say. His TV appearances include Ancient Aliens, the History Channel's British Roswell, Unsolved Mysteries, Good Day New York, The O'Reilly Factor, hey, you beat me on that one, um, The Real Roswell, National Geographic Channel, the Sci-Fi Channel documentary UFO Invasion at Rendlesham, The Early Show, CBS Nin Nina Hagen Show, I guess that's in Germany, uh, Network First and UFO and the UK, Lifetime Network, Conspiracy Film, Prediction One Canada. He has been all over the place. He is uh, well known in the UFO field. Peter, welcome back to a different perspective now that I've gotten through all that. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be back. Uh, as I say, um, I think we, were, we, were, we had been talking about investigations and um, what we had learned in it. What are, what are some of the things that you've learned in your long career of investigating UFOs? Well, first, let me say um, uh, to your opening remarks, um, I'm not adverse to discussing the matter that you referred to, which of course is the scandal that blew up over the British bestseller that I co-wrote uh, along with Larry Warren uh, about the Rendlesham Forest incident and how long and how well I believed my co-authors claims, which ultimately fell apart and a certain amount of forgery and confabulation, exaggeration lies that I dug deep, but I didn't dig deep enough at times. And I was not the investigator 35 years ago when I started that project that I was, that I became. <clears throat> also just for the sake of accuracy, um, our first secretary of defense, James Forrestal, um, uh, died by going out the window uh, of the Bethesda Naval Hospital, where he was due to be discharged a few hours from that time. And it was in May of 49. And the evidence that I present after years of research on that fascinating story, uh, a true Horatio Alger meets Greek tragedy, uh, American story, is that uh, he was murdered. He was forced out that window and did not go willingly. Um, those let, things... let me let me break in. Let me break in here because you you've gotten a couple of things here, and I, I wanted I want to go back a little bit to the yeah. Forest thing, and then we'll get to uh, James Forrestal because I think that's an interesting case to be. I, I wanted to say that in your defense, sort of, Larry Warren was at Rendell at the Bentwaters um, Air Force Base, uh, yes. Royal Air Force Base, Royal. Air, yeah, Royal Air Force. Well, it was uh, actually it, it, at least to the Americans, RAF yes. Bentwaters, but yes. Yeah. And, and he was um, in the security detachment there, um, but he just hadn't been involved in the events that took place in the forest with uh, Burroughs and Penniston and, and Charles Halt and, and 
those other people. Well, the events, in, to cut you off for one moment, the events yes. in question, it's one of the things that leads to early confusion when looking at uh, the allegations, occurred over three separate nights in separate locations with different witnesses and some crossovers on each night. And what I have come to understand, see the evidence for and believe now is that um, he inserted himself into the events and very cleverly and um, had me going for a very prolonged period of time on it. Well, I think when we talk about three nights, we have to remember one of the nights was December 25th to the morning of the 26th. The next night is the 26th again, going into the morning of the 27th and the third night is the 27th. And I think that's where some of the confusion came from because yes. we're dealing with that midnight thing there. Right. And it was confusing. And the second night involved just a couple of people who were not directly involved. Halt made an interesting comment. I don't know if you saw seen his big thick book, but the um, lieutenant who was the watch commander, I guess, um, Tramlin. Yeah. Um, may have lost a weapon during this, which would be a very serious thing to have happened. And uh, they talked originally about it being a pistol, but she may have lost a fully automatic uh, M16. Yeah. And uh, Halt makes mention to, of that in his book. And then they said she was transferred off the base not long after these events. And I would think that's probably had to do with the, the lost weapon than anything else. I know that uh, when we were in Iraq, we had one of our soldiers lose a weapon and but we were recovered it uh, within a couple of hours so it wasn't quite that big and i yeah halt says in the book that he thinks the weapon was recovered but he doesn't know okay fair enough the other thing that i want to say is something burroughs told me was that um there had been strange things going on in that area long before those three nights and, and, and oh, continued yes. on afterwards yes the rendlesham forest um where I thought I was going to visit once in February of 88, when uh, Warren and I made our first visit over, which I thought would be our only visit, and add credibility to the book that the co-author had actually returned to the location with the witness. Um, I, I've revisited the United Kingdom 20 or 25 times now, and I've returned to that forest summer, winter, spring and fall, morning, afternoon, and night over the years and research the area fairly extensively. And it is an area of legitimate high strangeness going back many years. Uh, it's also an area, as you know, Kevin, um, with a history of intelligence, NSA uh, occupation, um, uh, weapons development going back to the First World War. It's, it's quite a piece of territory. Which is kind of an interesting side story, by the way. Yes. We focus on those three nights and we have all this other information. I think Penniston talks a little bit about it in his book. I know John Burroughs told me quite a bit about that, um, suggesting that there's something more than just this, this one event or these three events that take place that, that really kind yes. of be looked at. The other thing I want to say is this is kind of like a, when Don and I went to Roswell the first time, we thought we would go down there. We'd spend a couple of days. We'd solve the mystery. <laughs> We thought, we thought we'd go down and discover it was a balloon and uh, you wouldn't have to go back. And I don't know how many times I've been to Roswell, New Mexico. You know, I can tell you the layout <laughs> of the city, I've been all over the city. It buy the gas on the north side of town as opposed to the south side of the town because it costs more on the south side of town for some <laughs> reason. You know, little things like, I can tell you where the church's fried chicken is. 
both locations of that. And I've watched the, and I kind of watched the, the, the city grow uh, from the first time we got there and expanded outwards and, and some of the new things that have come into the city yeah. uh, at that time. I'm going to have to take a break here. And I usually hesitate to say anything like that because, you know, people, oh, my God, they're going to have a commercial break. <laughs> yes, we are going to have a commercial break. I wanted to say, though, that um, my book, UFOs in the Deep State, which was published just a couple of months ago, is still available on Amazon.com for those who are interested in that thing. And I think it takes an interesting look at how the secrecy has developed around the UFO field. And it doesn't matter whether you believe UFOs are extraterrestrial craft or anything else. What we're looking at is the way that information has been treated by the government and how they've worked to suppress it and all the various investigations they've put together on that. I will be back right after this with uh, Peter Robbins. We'll be talking about James Forrestal and maybe touch a little again on uh, touch again on the Rendlesham Forest. So please stick around. back with Peter Robbins, who is uh, a well-known writer of UFO lore and uh, lecturer. His website, which I haven't mentioned, is PeterRobbinsNY.com. Peter Robbins, all one word, PeterRobbinsNY, all one word, .com, all lowercase. Uh, you can take a look at what he's done in the past about that. Um, and while we're at it, take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So there we go. When we went away, we were kind of chatting about the um, Rendlesham Forest weirdness. I don't know if we'd uh, touched on all the base. When you, when you were there in, in, in uh, England, did you get the feeling of the weirdness when you were in the forest and that sort of thing? Oh, good Lord, yes. Um, our, our very first trip over was in February of 88. And again, I... Uh, I brought my camera, a couple of rolls of film, my micro cassette recorders, notebooks, all that stuff that you uh, would have on hand as an analog investigator. And um, what threw me and what really was a life-changing event, as well as um, the event that made me say to myself, you're either going to believe this guy or not. If you are, you've got to stick with him, was on the very first night of our very first visit to the area we had a legitimate multiple UFO sighting that went on and on with different types of aerial phenomena. Uh, it was so overwhelming to me. And even while I was watching it, knowing how incredible or uncredible it would sound to say on my first night of my first visit with this highly controversial visit uh, witness, we saw several dozen uh, aerial phenomena from small star-sized things zigzagging to fully articulated disks, etc. And it caused me, um, uh, I, I think I went into literal shock out there in the field that night, trying to put it together as it was happening. In the book, there is a transcription. We each had a recorder in our hand, uh, doing our best to describe what we were seeing. But um, it was the best thing that ever happened to my co-author in terms of my commitment this not five or six miles away from the area that he alleged 
he had been involved in at that time about eight years before. Um, but yes, um, not just, gosh, um, your own sensory perceptions, but I remember some years going out there, never alone, uh, always with uh, some people, and this time with local researchers, one of them bringing his dog, all of us with flashlights, and getting out to the perimeter of Capel Green. And up until that point, reading about, hearing about the orb phenomena. As a photographer, I know about refraction that can catch in lenses. And I thought in the pitch dark, I will take some pictures here with a flash. And I was shocked to find out where there was no possibility of light refraction. I took the pictures in pitch dark. I got orbs on camera and it was um, a humbling experience, whatever it is is photographable and a real phenomena. I also got smoke or what seemed to be smoke when even though there were smokers with us, nobody was smoking. Also in that same, and that's just a small example. People have reported various phenomena and there's a lot of great mythology going back to the second world war. Uh, spirits, um, the ghost of a, uh, a German fighter pilot dragging his parachute, multiply witnessed, you know, as a diaphanous kind of phenomena. Again, this is all very subjective stuff, but there's no question. Um, it is an area steeped in mystery and also steep in very high security. Well, how far was the forest area away from the, uh, I guess it was the east gate, the back gate at the, at the yeah. how far uh, well, away is it? Well, it, we're talking about the East Gate of RAF Woodbridge, which was the sister base and much closer to the field that Warren was allegedly involved in an event. If an event happened there, I don't believe he was involved in it, but he certainly heard and knew details uh, or alleged details. So it was only about a mile or so from the east gate of RAF Woodbridge, but it was about five miles from the perimeter of RAF Bentwaters. So it's not something like you'd walk out the east gate, take a step or two, and you're basically at the edge of the forest. It's a bit of a no, distance away. You'd have about a mile walk there, maybe a, a bit more. Well, the thing, when you were talking, the thing that reminded me of is we had gone and looked at the spook light in Joplin, Missouri, and everybody said, well, you can't photograph, you can't possibly photograph it, you can see it. And we got there and we could see it. And I took any number of photographs of it and they all came out. We know what it is now based on our research. Annoyed a lot of people in Joplin, Missouri. And, and they would say, well, people, people have come to, to research this and uh, they haven't been able to discover what it was. Well, it took us about three days to discover exactly what it was. And the answer has been published in the newspapers any number of times. It wasn't that it was our discovery and nobody else had ever come up with it. Uh, but the point simply is, uh, like like you were saying, you know, you can't photograph this phenomenon, and yet yet I was able to do so, uh, which gets us back to the phenomena you were discussing. In from what you're saying, I get the impression it's not an extraterrestrial phenomenon, but something of a more paranormal phenomenon that you're talking about. You know, Kevin, responsibly, I can't say that I know. Uh, what I have come to feel, believe. Uh, into it over 40 plus years in this work, that we are dealing with a myriad of phenomena, and sometimes in the same location, and sometimes perhaps interacting. Some, I'm convinced, extraterrestrial, but some interdimensional, and whatever else is out there. 
you know, in kind of the Jacques Vallée wider philosophy of alternatives. Um, so I am very clear of how little, even at this point in having worked the Rendlesham Forest consistent, case consistently for over nine years, and then followed it somewhat actively for another 15 years before I just burned out on it and walked away from it, that I am very clear that I do not know the answers to the questions that are posed over the years by credible witnesses uh, like Burroughs, like Penniston, like other men who were involved at the time, and um, certainly more than um, one woman also as well. well. I was gonna say, according to both Penniston and Burroughs, there was some kind of investigation by the Air Force Office's special investigation and uh, other unknown governmental agencies no, that engaged I, in hypnotic regression, chemical regressions, and that sort of thing that, that I guess everybody who was involved in the forest was subjected to, with the possible exception of Colonel Halt. He said, no, he, that didn't happen to him. And you can look at it two ways. Number one, that uh, as the senior officer there and uh, sharing everything he possibly could with the investigators, he wouldn't have been subjected to that, or he just doesn't remember the chemical regressions and that sort of thing that uh, yes, I, 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 he doesn't remember, but. Uh, it's an open question with all due respect to Colonel Halt, who um, after years of demonizing him in my writing, in my talks and realizing ultimately how wrong I had been uh, when we ultimately reconnected and I apologized profusely uh, for my behavior over the years, he was, he was extraordinary in how gracious he was in accepting that apology. Uh, I spent about a year and a half apologizing to people and to doing my best to restore friendships that I had self-immolated over the course of believing my co-author and rejecting accounts that turned out to be a lot more solid than him. And it brings up an important point in terms of investigation, which is that when you get something wrong, and you've already published around it, you're on record with it, there is a tendency, especially in the world of guys, to tough it out. Who wants to admit that you were fooled? Uh, you know, take sort of a John Wayne approach, just ignore, you know, any bad press you get, know that people sort of forget after a while and continue on. I don't subscribe to that. You clean up your act, you do whatever is necessary, as often as necessary, to cop to your errors, uh, your misunderstandings, the things that you got wrong, and you do it for as long as you need to, and then you get back to work. Well, I think it's important that we correct the record as often as we, we can, because we don't want the bad information to go out there. I've just completed um, the, the book that I'd written in 1997, Project Moondust, and uh, a publisher approached me to uh, wanted to republish it as an ebook, And I said, well, okay. no, I've, I've got to update it. And uh, went through a lot of those things and, and discovered all the mistakes I had made in that book uh, because it was the best information available at the time. Exactly. And we had access to much more now today. Today, I can look stuff up on the internet and, and correct that stuff. Um, I was of the impression that there were only really two nights of mystery at, at Bentwaters. Well, um, because because of Larry Warren's influence on that, and it seemed like he had invented the day 
the, the third, the one night to inject himself into the, into the story. Yeah. And then I, as I was working on this, I realized, well, it's, you know, December 25th, 26th, 26th, 27th, and 27th. And now it all works out. We got three nights over two days. It makes sense to me. But correcting all of that sort of thing and little things that, that um, most people would know get into the minutia of the investigation and you say, well, this wasn't quite right. I can manipulate this now and make it right. <laughs> and I think, I think it's important that we do that because it is a search for the truth, not to exactly to exactly. emphasize my point of view or your point of view or somebody's point of view. It's what is no. the truth here? That is, the pro- that is an ongoing problem in the world of UFO studies because we're dealing with egos, some of them rather big, some of them fairly fragile, uh, some of them very self-aggrandizing, and other people who are in the trenches doing the work, not looking for a great deal of glory, but um, doing their part in trying to get us to whatever is truest that we can establish. And you know, to the point of our show, in terms of investigation, investigation techniques, my whole career track was to be an artist, a painter. Um, and my whole formal education in that area was to think out of the box, to come at things from non-traditional angles. And when I became obsessed with the subject of UFOs, literally um, not even overnight in the course of uh, about a few minutes, as my sister uh, shared with me in our first conversation about the subject, her abduction-related experiences, this in the mid-70s, when there was little out there on the subject and now her even word for word has been confirmed for me hundreds of times in other people's accounts, I was starting with nothing. I didn't know there was such a thing as ufology. I didn't know there were people like you out there who dedicated a good part of their life to the study. I just knew that we had had this extraordinary childhood sighting, that my sister was not a liar and that this was an active memory she had held on to. I was lucky enough to connect up with several people who became mentors for me in my first few years, and then one more in the 80s. Uh, They were a retired Hungarian army staff officer, uh, Komen von Kovetsky, who during World War II was in charge of photo analysis and photo reconnaissance for the Hungarian military before the war had been a film director. And he was um, in his 70s when we met and considered himself a military scientist. He had emigrated to the States in 52, a few months before a subject that you are more than familiar with, the Washington DC overflights. And as a photo analyst with a military background, that was the event that got him into UFO studies. And one of the things that I learned from him that was reinforced with my other three mentors was, as he would put it, he said, like almost all Hungarians, I'm a Catholic. I go to mass on Sunday, I follow the teachings of the church, but I do not mix my religious beliefs with my investigation into this phenomena. I keep it very separate. Triangulate, build your case around real evidence. Through him, I met somebody who died much too young, um, a highly decorated New York City police detective, Pete Mazzola who had created an organization in the 70s, primarily a police officer's lobby um, on UFO knowledge and uh, uh, standing against UFO secrecy. Pete was no nonsense, Brooklyn, Italian, American, um, and 
Other cops made a little fun of him for his UFO passion, but he was a great investigator. And he let, and let, me, inter let me interrupt you here because yeah. we're running up against the clock once again. And I hate to do that because we got a good role going here. As, as you can see, I'm talking to Pete Robbins. He um, investigated the uh, um, Bentwaters case, been, been active in UFO research for a long, long time. Uh, the website is Peter Robbins. SN.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we will be back right after this. So please stick around. I am back with Peter Robbins. We are doing our best to practice social distancing. We don't even, we're not even in the same states because we want to maintain social distancing. And if we were really going to do it, we'd have on masks, but we don't. I just go off on these tangents periodically because I can. <laughs> uh, when we went away, Peter, you were talking about the New York City detective that helped yeah. get you involved or help mentor your investigative um, activity. So yeah. run with that for a moment there. And then we need to get to James Forrestal because that's, I think, an important topic to talk about as well. Yeah, to um, compress a bit, what I learned from Pete was, and again, I know right now there are more and more spiritual aspects, consciousness aspects, very active in UFO research community. Um, there's a whole bunch of things going on and different ways to approach it. I'm old school. Um, I vibrated at a low frequency. <laughs> um, what Pete taught me was investigation is investigation. And to pursue my UFO investigations, much as law enforcement or um, uh, legal personnel would pursue a actual case to go to court, uh, physical evidence, supported by anecdotal evidence, historic evidence, um, and photographic evidence, evidence in terms of documentation, multiple witnesses wherever possible, build it on several legs, build the case like that. And ultimately, um, within a year of my involvement, I met another painter who at about the time that I was becoming extremely interested in this subject was as well. And his name was Bud Hopkins. He was ultimately the best self-trained investigator I've ever met. And I used to joke with him that had he gone into law enforcement, God help the criminal element of New York City. Uh, it's a name that doesn't need a lot of explanation to many of you viewers. This was five years, though, before he wrote his first book. And our friendship ran 35 years, a good part of which I worked as his assistant. Bud's intuition and ethics and work methodology was much in the spirit of Komen von Kovetsky's and Pete Mazzola's, building a solid case on different kinds of evidence. About 10 years later, in 87, I met one of my heroes who I had first heard speak 10 years before at the United Nations, uh, and that was the late, great Stanton T. Friedman. And I don't have to tell you that he 
reinforced all that methodology for me. So I was extremely fortunate in the mentoring that I had and what I try to bring to investigation. We can never take anything for granted. Some of us, you might say, no longer have the luxury of disbelief. We've seen too much evidence. We've handled it. We've interacted with too many credible people. That is no excuse, though, for when you move on to the next case to say, oh, well, this is obviously real because it's a real phenomenon. You've got to go back to the baseline again. Assume that the most mundane, everyday possibility may account for whatever the mystery is. Um, in the spirit of the great Sherlock Holmes, who I became enamored with as a 12-year-old, deductive reasoning. Begin with the most mundane possibility, examine it fully, and then take one step up to the second most boring possibility. Continue that process. And if nothing pans out, then things get interesting. Then you start to look for the more exotic explanations. And that's a format I try to follow in all of my work. Well, what's interesting is you talk about um, the way you build the case from this point to this point to this point. I've talked for years and years about multiple chains of evidence. And uh, it's, it's basically the same thing, just under different terminology. Uh, I, I think one of the things that got me off onto that area was the French Academy of Science in 1803, I think it was, said, well, rocks don't fall from the sky. And there was an investigation oh, yes. that was conducted by a, by a scientist uh, a year later where he used multiple chains of evidence. He talked to the witnesses of, of a meteor fall in France um, from, from the peasant in the field to the highly educated um, religious people, the, the Catholics, yeah. the, the um, Christians in the area. He talked to all of the people. He had a report from a geological survey that had just coincidentally been made in the area. So he knew what all the mineral elements were. And here was something that was introduced from somewhere else that didn't fit into that geology. So he was using these multiple chains of evidence to get to the point where, yes, rocks do fall from the sky and change the French Academy of Science. I read the reports. You can go online and find that, uh, that whole thing out uh, that yeah. way. But it was, it was that way. The more chains of evidence you have, the better, the more solid the case. So you have multiple witnesses at independent locations. You have photo. The greatest case would be multiple photographs and video from separate locations. That's right. You have physical evidence yeah. in the form of the landing traces or, you know, or the uh, electromagnetic effects, which is an interaction with the environment. That in can be in Bud Hopkins' most arguably controversial case, the Brooklyn Bridge uh, UFO abductions, one of the things that was most exciting for me because of every case that he worked, that I was either a fly on the wall or at his shoulder or doing, you know, filing or uh, work to organize materials he was collecting. The one I was most deeply involved in was that one. And it took six years <clears throat> being involved in that to one degree or another every day, week or month, depending on when new pieces came together. And one of the most exciting things was when the letters started to come in from people who had observed this disc-shaped phenomena right outside the window of this 11 or 12 story apartment down uh, where Linda lived and still lives um, in lower Manhattan, who sent drawings. And 
you know there is something special about witness drawings. Almost always, they're not by professional artists. Bud and I were professional artists. And so each new letter with each new drawing um, captured a, a special attention. All these witnesses, and I should say here, all but I think one letter were handwritten in different handwritings, different postmarks, different stamps, etc. I'm sure <clears throat> that as I can be, this is no organ orchestrated, you know, fraud or something, but they were done from different angles. A woman who saw it driving back from uh, a friend's retirement party coming back to Manhattan on the Brooklyn Bridge, somebody who saw it from the west side, from the uh, FDR Drive, another person who saw it from the New York Post building downtown, etc. All of the drawings had the same color markings as the ones that were the one that was reported. And all of them were relatively the same shape based on the skill of the individual involved, as were drawings done by Linda's young son at the time, Johnny, uh, one of the young sons. So again, this was something that wasn't, it was a very exciting confluence of information, each piece supporting the next one. And, you know, that's when casework um, can get very rewarding. You don't want to get overconfident, but it was um, a wonderful aspect uh, of researching that case. Well, you said something that kind of caught my attention is completely and totally irrelevant to this. Um, I did an investigation of a woman in, in Utah who believed that she had been abducted. I now believe it was an episode of sleep paralysis based on all the evidence that we've been able to gather. The only reason I bring this up is because she drew the aliens force of what the creatures look like while conscious, awake, and she drew it again under hypnotic um, regression. regression, and the drawings are completely different. Interesting. She is much, much better artist while she was unconscious drawing it. And, and if I'd known this was coming up, I would be able to show these, these to, uh, to everybody. But it, it just struck me as, as kind of an interesting thing. By the way, I handed her a green felt tip pen to make the drawings because I figured that was the appropriate color for something like that. Showing that some, once in a while I had a, a sense of humor about these things. But it was just kind of interesting to see how much better she drew under the hypnotic regression than, than mm. when she was fully conscious. I want to get away from this and get to Forrestal mm. um, because he was the first Secretary of Defense, I believe. He had been the yes. Secretary of Navy when, they, when the right. law was passed. I think Patterson was the guy who was the Secretary of the War, Secretary of War at the time. Yes. Uh, Forrestal became, when all that was combined into the Department of Defense, Forrestal became the Secretary of Defense. You say he was murdered. Yes. The question becomes, did it have to do with UFO investigations or was it something else? I think it was, as is often the case, when somebody suffers a profound nervous breakdown. And he did that. And it was embarrassingly public. Um, I'm sure he was dealing with it. No question from accounts leading up to uh, his hospitalization in um, May. Uh, of, of 49. He literally had the breakdown within minutes of stepping down as our first Secretary of Defense and Lewis K. Johnson, um, basically a party, um, a big donor who Truman, you know, put in as the second Secretary of Defense. He 
he was a remarkable man and the ultimate team player, a true patriot, as far as I'm concerned, rags to riches, self-made. Um, his story reads like the great Gatsby in a way, and I do compare it to that. I should also say that I spent almost 30 years on and off from my beginning obsession with him to ultimately producing a documentary on him. And Forrestal assumed the position of Secretary of Defense in September of 47, a scant maybe 10 weeks after Roswell. One can assume that that first day at work, there was this material waiting for him. If you look at the flowchart of the responsibilities of the Secretary of Defense, certainly back then, he was the second most powerful man in the Western world. Everything that Truman knew about this phenomena, Forrestal knew it and often knew it first, except for what he had inherited at that point. Well, Friends, let, me say, let, me, let me interrupt here to say, I, looking at the chain of command, if Roswell was alien spacecraft, it would have gone up the army chain of command from, from uh, Roswell to Fort Worth to Washington, D.C. The Strategic Air Command was in Washington, D.C. at the time. Yep. And then it would have gone into the civilian end of the chain of command, which would have been the Secretary of War, which would I think was Patterson at the time, may not have may not have made it to the Secretary of the Navy, who was Forrestal, although they may have talked about this, but it was an army problem to deal with. Once those two departments were combined into the, um, sec the Department uh, of Defense, defense yeah. uh, it would seem that given the timing because there was a great deal of interest in what are the UFOs, what are the flying saucers, yeah. what's going on, that he would have been briefed on everything he didn't know yeah. prior to that. So if he didn't know about Roswell prior to what he would have known about it once he became the Secretary of Defense. Yes. Let's also remember that although Forrestal was Secretary of Defense and made Secretary of Defense in 1944, uh, made Secretary of Navy in 1944 upon the death by heart attack, of uh, the then Secretary of Navy, uh, I think it was Frank Knox. However, yes. Forrestal stepped down as Secretary of Navy when we won the war or shortly thereafter. So there was a period almost of two years where he was not in that loop. That was that period of time when Truman asked him and not a committee of people, but asked him personally to oversee the dismantling of the old War Department, a name that I always found incredibly honest uh, <laughs> um, that we had had since the revolution and create this new entity called the Department of Defense, deal with the infighting, the different uh, service branches jockeying for position in September of 47, shortly after he took office, the activation of the newest service branch, the United States Air Force, switched over from the Army Air Corps. And let me, I let me interrupt, let me interrupt here because we're running out of time once again. We just get into it and almost got away from me there. By the way, it was not the Army Air Corps at that time, it was the Army Air Forces. But that's a whole technical thing that's unimportant right now. I'm here with Peter Robbins. We're talking about UFOs, Forrestal, and all and investigations and things like that. His website still is PeterRobbinsNY.com. Think of it as PeterRobbinsNewYork.com. I'm at www.KevinRandall.blogspot.com. Please stick around. We'll be back right after this.
I am back with Peter Robbins. We are talking about many things in the ufological world. And some things go off on a, a bit of a tangent because of all the various aspects of ufology and how a lot of what goes on in the real world affects ufology and vice versa. And we were talking about um, James Forrestal, the first secretary of defense and uh, what he may or may not have known about Roswell and that sort of thing and how it may have influenced his I was going to say his decision to jump out the window, but from what you're saying, Peter, uh, the decision of people to push him out of the window. Yes. And let's let's look at that a little bit deeper. You you've got good evidence that he was murdered as opposed to committed suicide. I do, Kevin. Um, I also just wanted to say uh, the Army Air Forces. Um, I was thinking of my dad's service. He was Army Air Corps. Um, that was a branch. Branch. What what happened in 1942? They became the Army Air Forces, and when you get to later on, you had the Army Ground Forces and the Army Air Forces, uh, and and it was all under the Chief of Staff of the Army. So Eisenhower was the commander of the Army Air Forces and the Army uh, Ground Forces, yeah. and after 47, it all became the Army again, and then of course the Air Force. But there was an Army Air Corps as well. Yes, you were correct. Um, but yes, uh, it, it's easy to go off on tangents when we're talking about this. One of the things I learned about James Forrestal, reading his published excerpts from his diaries, uh, the definitive biography on him, out-of-print memoirs by literally everybody that knew him. At one point, I just went to used bookstores, bought every book by everyone that he had worked with, literally. Um, you know that feeling of when you're deep into a research project and you're just, you're going off on these wonderful tangents of getting this information firsthand, so to say, from individuals that work with the individual or the case that you're focused on. He had a deeply ingrained habit from his youth on to personalize his professional and personal successes and failures. He also was a very charismatic individual comparable to John Kennedy at the Roaring Twenties, um, as he uh, uh, had established himself as a player in society, the head of a uh, successful Wall Street brokerage that made its way through the depression and kept making money for investors, that he numbered among his friends famous uh, writers, uh, actors, um, people in public life, my mother had a crush on him as a teenager, which was another thing that factored into my focusing in on who was this man. Um, but he was um, very distant. He was a great team player, um, dedicated to helping us win the war, like very few people were. But he had no individual. He had no facility for confiding in anyone, and that combined with this deeply ingrained habit of personalizing failures, he inherited 10 weeks into the UFO, the modern age of UFO uh, sightings era, um, the whole shebang, and was responsible to Harry S. Truman to produce some results to me, get to the bottom of let it. Let me interrupt here, because I think it's important to point out that we're, we're looking at the very beginning of the UFO phenomenon in the United States. Yes. Uh, you look at Ed, what Ed Ruppelt had written and what others had written. The Pentagon was in a panic because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know how dangerous this was. They didn't know yes. if it was a matter of national security. So you've got this guy, Forrestal, who's out having a good time, <laughs> not part of the government. And suddenly he's thrown into this thing. And one of the major 
problems he's going to face is what are these flying saucers? Is there something real there? Is it a danger to our national security? Is it yes. Soviet? Is it other competitors? Is it extraterrestrial? Something from, I think they was interplanetary at the time as opposed to interstellar, yes. but, but thrown into this thing, trying to come up with some kind of plan to figure out what was happening. Yeah, he, the good time basically ended about 15 years before that. He, um, at the advice of a, um, um, a financial consultant to Roosevelt um, in the so-called kitchen cabinet, the dollar a year men, uh, accepted Roosevelt's invitation to set aside his business life, move to Washington, D.C., and as a successful Wall Street um, executive and broker to assist in helping us get out of the Depression. He stayed. He devoted the rest of his life to public work and walked away from a very lucrative business career. A true patriot in that sense. But well, let me, let me, what we need to do here, because we're running out of time, is what would be the motivation for killing him? Well, he had the weight on his shoulders of all this. And when he, when Roosevelt, when Truman won surprisingly against Dewey, all uh, cabinet members were asked to submit their pro forma uh, resignations, hoping that they might be rehired. His was accepted and it depressed him tremendously, along with the fact that he had never been able to do anything to produce results in getting any closer to the mystery of this phenomena. And he took it very personally and he had nobody to confide in and the pressure built up and he suffered a profound nervous breakdown in, you know, today, who doesn't know somebody who hasn't had a mental episode or hasn't seen a therapist or psychologist or kids, um, you know, in seeing a counselor in 1949, nobody knew anybody. And to think of this ultimate alpha male as having a nervous breakdown was very concerning to uh, the people closest to Truman and the most powerful in his administration. And their concern, I am convinced, was if he recovered, whatever that meant, might not he have had a breakdown or, or a relapse and say something? He had all the secrets of this. And his he did try to take his own life several times in the days following the profound breakdown, public breakdown. And that's why he was institutionalized. But he was getting better. I've seen the hospital records. I've seen the accounts of friends, the accounts of the president. The day, the night before he's supposed to be discharged, he was looking forward to returning to public life, to private life, and I think hoping that he would simply be left alone. He, like a good Roman soldier, he had tried to throw himself on his sword, but he was stopped physically at every point and then institutionalized. But he had to die. They couldn't take a chance. Um, I think I make the case, again, this is in minutes rather than years of research in this documentary that I, I created called uh, The Extraordinary Life and Suspicious Death of James Forrestal. Not streaming yet, but will be is available in DVD form. Um, we could devote several programs to just James Forrestal, but um, I think I do make a case and what I will send you, Kevin, is a secured link to the documentary so that you can see it, because I would really value your thoughts on it, and perhaps we can return to it at another time. Well, I think the, the interesting thing here is uh, during World War II, if you got out of line, 
and that means just uh, speaking out of turn one time or, or something like that, you would find yourself locked up in St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was a mental hospital. You yeah. weren't necessarily yeah. mentally ill. It was just a way of putting you, getting you out of uh, the way. Yeah. Um, and so he, if, if Forstall is in the hospital undergoing his therapy, yes, then he's pretty well incognito. They could make him pretty well incognito at that point, or uh, impossible to get to if they wanted to. But they didn't. They uh, that's where, where I was going. But they didn't do that, and he was going to be discharged. Now he becomes a loose cannon. Exactly. That was exactly my kind of my thought on that. Um, but uh, you know, uh, of course, we're dealing with a world time. Uh, I'm sorry, a peacetime environment as opposed to a wartime environment where some suppression of uh, personal rights in the Constitution were necessary yeah. because of the war effort. But once you move beyond the war effort, then those sort of draconian methods uh, certainly should be set aside. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess that's kind of what I was thinking here is if it had been wartime, he'd have been, been locked up in St. Elizabeth's out of the way, but now he wasn't. He was in Bethesda and his friends could get to him and all of that. Yeah. Um, again, uh, it's an incredibly detailed case. Um, physical evidence is extraordinary as well. On the window that he allegedly threw himself out of, it's covered the, the jam at the bottom was covered with fingernail scratch marks. Uh, this fact established almost overnight by the lead investigative writer for the New York Times at the time, uh, a very distinguished and respected uh, investigative reporter, one small piece of the puzzle. Uh, again, that his physicians all agreed that he was recovering and would make a full recovery if allowed to within months, which was going to be on the private estate of a friend out of the public eye. Um, he had, was a very lapsed Catholic and had asked um, the ranking um, prelate in the Washington, D.C. area, a Monsignor Sheehy, uh, to help him return to the church. Sheehy, of course, very well connected within the Beltway, took him at his word and appeared to meet with him. I mean, he appeared at Bethesda uh, on um, scheduled meetings, I think five or six times, and was always told the secretary's sleeping, he's in therapy, et cetera, and ultimately met with the Secretary of Navy, blew his top, and was there the morning that he died to meet with him that morning. He couldn't be allowed to speak to him or anybody else. Um, I think we should point out one thing. Once we created the Department of Defense, there was still a Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of Defense, right. uh, Navy, and a Secretary of the Air Force yeah. uh, as subordinate positions to the Secretary of Defense, as opposed Correct. to being cabinet level uh, positions, they were now subordinate to the Secretary of Defense. So absolutely, the Secretary absolutely. of the Navy actually worked for Forrestal. You bet. At that time. So he was held pretty much incommunicado as opposed to incognito. <laughs> he was. Um, a number of distinguished people, including uh, Lewis Johnson, the second, second Secretary of Defense, visited him at, at Bethesda, as did President Truman, as did uh, Sidney Sowers, uh, first uh, head of the CIA and the president's uh, national security advisor. Um, we knew, so to say, that he was recovering. Uh, 
and was responding to treatment. That was the ultimate irony. Certainly his doctors were not cleared to know about the UFO mystery and his you know, uh, concern that upper, uh, people up the chain were having that he might talk at some point. Uh, the idea of, again, he was an ultimate alpha male. And for these guys, this was unheard of. Real men don't have nervous breakdowns. He was potentially the greatest security leak in the Western world at that moment, even though I'm convinced that he literally would have taken a bullet for Truman or Roosevelt. He was dedicated to public service and he loved this country. Let's, uh, uh, let's end it there because I'm out of time. I think that's a good stopping point. Peter, thank you so much for taking time to uh, share that visit with us, I suppose I should say. Uh, once again, the website is www.httpeterrobbinsny.com. Uh, uh, the documentary that we were talking about is... Uh, the, the Extraordinary Life and Suspicious Death of James Forrestal, available through the website On Wings, O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S, productions.com. Well, thank you very much, Peter. And we'll get, we'll get together again very soon. I look forward to it, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, coming up next week, I'm going to be talking to Avi Loeb. He of Harvard and the alien artifact that came through the solar system and the creator or one of the creators of the Galileo project to search for more of these alien artifacts. He is convinced that uh, it is an artificial construct, not necessarily in the fashion of UFOs, but, but something created by another civilization. We'll be chatting with him next week for about an hour about that and the Galileo project. As I've said many times, um, my latest book, I guess, is UFOs in the Deep State coming out in the near future will be, I think we're gonna change the name to Chasing Moondust, but it's an update of the Project Moondust book that was published uh, uh, quite a number of years ago, updated for today's world. I will be having a uh, book about the Leveland sightings coming out here next year as well. So I've got a lot of projects coming out. Uh, you have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. And I'll be back in about 167 hours with more incredible information. And thanks for tuning in.